Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm not going to say that as many times as Courtney did on the video. <laughs> you guys doing good? You're looking good. Well, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision, and I have a confession to make. This is my fifth wedding ring. Still on the first wife. Uh, half our lives now, so it's getting pretty serious. But not including silicone ones. This is the fifth metal one that I've owned. My original one was gold, and I got sick of like scratching it up at the gym, so I started just tying it to the drawstring of my shorts. And you're going to be shocked to know that plan failed, and one day it was gone. And so I hopped on eBay. This is how long ago this was and how old I am. eBay was still doing better than Amazon at the time. And I bought another one for like 40 bucks. But a few days after I started wearing it, my lead pastor, I was doing youth ministry at the time, was walking next to me and he goes, Mike, I bet you $5 I can roll my ring farther down this hallway than you. He was like a 55-year-old child which made him a kindred spirit for me. So I said, Randy, you're on. And I lost badly. And while he was picking up his 30-plus-year-old original wedding ring, I realized that mine had gone down a staircase into an elevator shaft. And I thought, I can't tell, Jenny. I lost another one. It's too soon. So I went on eBay and bought that same ring all over again. And a year later, I lost it on a mission trip to Mexico. And I, at that point, decided this is an expensive habit. I got to just buy cheap rings. And I found one for $8. It was titanium. And a couple weeks after I got it, I was taking it off to show a friend how light it was. I was like, feel how light this titanium is. And it, it, it came apart. You'll be shocked to hear that too. An $8 ring was glued together in two pieces. And so then I got this one. I've had it for over a decade. So the moral of that story is just don't expect to see this for very much longer. All right? I was telling this story to a lady who asked about my ring a couple of months ago. And she said, well, aren't you just so sad that you lost the original one? And I thought about it for a little while. And I was like, ah, not really. It was a symbol of the marriage, and I didn't lose my wife yet, so I know just where she is. That's a win, most days. But the whole interaction got me thinking about how the way we react when we lose things gives us a pretty clear picture of who and what we value most. Like in life, we're all going to lose some stuff. Some of it's valuable but replaceable, like keys and wallets and wedding rings, if you're me. Some of it's useless and unimportant, like socks and pens. And some of it is stuff that was a real source of meaning and life and hope for us, like relationships and jobs and loved ones and money in our retirement accounts and more. And when we lose those things, the way we react gives us a window into where our security and our identity is located. And it's hard as human beings to trust all the stuff of life to the source of life. But unless we do, when we lose things, we're going to be crushed. And so this morning, I want to talk about how we can trust God, not just for what we need, but with what we have. 
We're in the middle of a series right now called When the River Runs Dry, and that is, of course, named after the classic 1991 Garth Brooks hit. It's not, actually, just kidding. It's, it's a look into the life of Elijah, but I think the Garth Brooks song does have something to say about his life. He's saying, there's bound to be rough waters, and I know I'll take some falls, but with the good Lord as my captain, I can make it through it all. I had to look that up this week. I do not listen to country music, but when I did, I thought, hey, that kind of that kind of fits. Elijah had some rough waters where he had to trust God's leading or he would have been a goner. Last week, we talked about how God called him to give a message to this evil king named Ahab, who along with his wife Jezebel, were leading the Israelite people to destruction by forcing them to worship this idol named Baal, who was known as the Lord of the dew and rain, and trying to coerce a little bit of dew and rain out of Baal so their crops would grow meant sacrificing children on the altar in his temple and a whole, a whole bunch of other like horrifyingly oppressive stuff. And so God sent Elijah to deliver this message, hey, I'm the real and living God. I'm turning off the dew and rain to prove it to you so that I can draw you back to truth and life. And in response to being handed that message, the sweet little royal couple decided we should murder Elijah. And so God had him go hide out in this place called the Kareth Ravine. And he promised him, if you go to this spot, I'm going to provide a brook for you, even though there's a drought in the land, and I'm going to provide ravens to deliver your food. And that was all going great until one day the, the river ran dry. Elijah woke up and, and the ravens weren't there anymore. They stopped delivering like ravens do in the playoffs and the, like... <laughs> That was for Tina. But anyways, like Elijah, he's sitting here. Like imagine, imagine being him. You're in the spot God told you to go to. God was like, hey, if you show up here, if you follow me here, I'm going to provide. And so you went there and then God quit. It just, it just didn't happen anymore. Like what a frustrating thing. Elijah's sitting there in this ravine going, that's it. I've had it with this dump. I got no food. I got no job. My pet raven's heads are falling off. What am I going to do next? And God spoke to him in verse 8 of 1 Kings 17. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can open up to 1 Kings 17. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. If you need a Bible or your kids do, we have a whole bunch of them back there in the next steps area. But, but this is what goes down. Elijah's sitting there. He's looking at a dry brook. And ravens have failed to deliver breakfast. And God says, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Okay, first things first, God did not forget about Elijah. Like the river didn't run dry because God didn't care about him anymore. God cut off the flow because Elijah needed to go. Like God stopped providing because it was time for Elijah to move from where he was toward the next thing God had for him. I don't think as human beings, we're always tempted to stay where God's provided in the past, especially if it's comfortable, rather than look ahead toward what, might, or toward what God might have for us next in the future. And that's certainly the case for Elijah. The ravine was safe. He had to be fed by birds, which is a little bit gross. Like you've seen the way birds feed each other. I don't know how it worked for him, but like at least no one was trying to stab him there. But God made it difficult for him to stay by cutting off his provision. He cut off the flow because Elijah needed 
to go. And specifically, God called them and, and said, go at once. And in Hebrew, that means get up. God said, get up and go. I'm going to keep providing for you, but I'm going to do it in a different way than I've been doing it in the past. Here's the catch with that, though. Elijah was going to need pretty big faith in order to experience the provision God had out ahead of him. And here's why. We read, go to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and that means almost nothing to us. But to Elijah, it meant God showed up in the ravine and said, hey, buddy, I'm going to need you to take a 100-plus-mile journey through enemy territory to a pagan nation that just so happens to be Queen Jezebel's homeland, and then uh, you're going to meet a widow and you're going to have to rely on her for food. At this point, Elijah's going, really? How's this going to work? I got some questions, Lord. First of all, I don't even know if I can make this 100-mile journey. I am a wanted man in my own homeland. If anyone catches me, they're going to kill me. Second of all, even if I get to Sidon and I meet some widow there, she's Sidonian. I'm Israelite. She's not going to want to help me. And even if she's willing to help me, like widows are barely surviving in good times. And there's a drought. You caused the drought. She don't got no food. Like Elijah had some really serious questions at this point about how in the world God's plan might work out for him. What God was doing in his life is something that God does for you and me all the time. He was reminding him that the who matters a whole lot more than the how. Sometimes God turns off the flow. Sometimes the river runs dry. Sometimes he calls us uncomfortably forward. And we got to remember when God calls, we need to focus on the who, not the how. God is the source of life so we can trust him with all the stuff of life, even when we don't fully understand what he's doing. But there's a catch with that kind of trust. It requires more than lip service. It demands that we do something more than say, okay, God, I trust you. Because if all Elijah had done was say, okay, God, I trust you, he would have still been sitting in a waterless, foodless ravine, he had to trust with his feet and take the difficult journey from the safe space where he was to the dangerous place God called him to go next. And that meant deciding to obey before he understood. Here's the thing in your life. If you wait to obey until you understand everything God's doing, you will never get around to obeying because God is not in the habit of explaining himself ahead of time. He just doesn't work like that, which means if you want the life God made you for, you have to go before you know. You have to go before you know repeatedly. But you can do that because the who matters more than the how. Like if you know the who, going to the place he called you to next, even if you don't understand how he's going to provide there or what he's going to do there, is not just a blind, dumb leap of faith. It's trusting the God who has never done anything except prove himself faithful, right? That's why Elijah went. He knew who God was and how God loved him. So verse 10 says, he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, widow, would you bring me a jar with water in it so I might have a drink? Okay, I can't read this outside of the voice of my two middle schoolers 
who sometimes have a video game or a movie that they just possibly couldn't pause. They can't even imagine doing that. And so they call out to me from wherever they are to wherever I may be, as though my purpose in life is to serve them. Like, Dad! Dad! What? Can you give me a drink? Are your legs broken? Did you forget where the sink is? Like, why is this my problem all of a sudden? How's Elijah going to call out to some widow like, Hey, widow, can I get a drink? Well, he's testing her willingness. He wants to know if she's even, like, interested in helping him out at all. Because he kind of expects her to be like, no, get your own drink. Also, you're an Israelite man. I'm a Sidonian woman. I don't even know why you're talking to me. But this widow, like, miraculously, as if God told him this is what was going to happen, starts walking toward the well to get him some water and then he has the audacity as she's walking over there to be like, oh, yeah, hey, hey. Um, also, also, while you're there, please, some bread. Like now he's really pushing his luck, right? But on this one, he's testing her capacity. He found out that she's willing to help him. He wants to know if she's able to help him because God said she could help him. And I imagine in this moment, she's, she's like trying to help him out that she kind of hangs her head. Maybe with a little bit of shame. Because asking for water is one thing. There's a drought, but there still is water at the bottom of the well. You got to lower the bucket pretty far down, but you can get it. Asking for bread from a widow in a time where she almost certainly had none to spare. That's a big ask. And so I, just, I, I picture her just looking down at the ground as she replies to Elijah, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. An intense and morbid, but also fascinating response. Because something in here gives us the indication she didn't quite believe that Elijah was going to believe her. And so she makes an oath. She's like, in case you think I'm holding out on you, in case you think I got bread that I won't give you, I swear on the name of God, that I do not have bread. Except it's really weird because she swears by the name of his God, not her God. Like by all accounts, as a Sidonian woman, she should have made this oath. I, I swear to you on the name of Baal, I don't have any bread. But that's not what she says. She says, I swear by the name of Yahweh. She calls him by name. Anytime the word Lord is in all caps in your Bible, that's the personal name God gave himself speaking out of the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3, Yahweh. She says, I swear by the name of Yahweh. I don't have any bread. Which seems weird, but I think it's a pretty clear indicator that she's starting to doubt whether Baal really has what she needs. She's like, I don't know anymore if, if he's alive. How can I swear by the name of a God I'm starting to doubt? Because if this, if this God, Baal, is really the dew and, or the, the Lord of the dew and the rain, he sure hasn't done much lately. Like, I don't think I better swear by his life. It feels like he's dead. And I spent my whole life going to the church services. I've been, I've been singing the songs, you know. I showed up at his temple and said, you got the right stuff, Baali. But now I don't know if he's got any stuff, let alone the right stuff. That was for all the 80s kids out there. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Notice, notice when she talks to Elijah, she still says, your God, 
not my God or not the God. Her trust hasn't migrated to Yahweh from Baal yet, but she's starting to doubt whether Baal has got the right stuff. And in this moment, I can't help but see me and us and so many people in America these days. Because I think if we were willing to be like vulnerably honest with one another this morning, every one of us could admit that we have some like, some like little G gods that we've been chasing after that we've been believing can provide us with hope and meaning and life and everything we desire, but they haven't been delivering the goods. And we keep falling for it. We keep following after them, even though they haven't shown up for us in the way they promised they would. And for some of us, maybe that's a job or a career. Our identity is completely wrapped up in being successful at what we do. For some of us, it's a relationship or a string of relationships. Or maybe it's, it's money or possessions or power or sex or substances or accolades or likes on social media. But I got to ask you this morning, if you've been turning to your career, if you've been turning to your computer, if you've been turning to TikTok, if you've been turning to your talent, is it delivering what it promised? Is it really? I want to challenge all of us to ask the question right now, what God are you tempted to chase even though it has not been delivering the right stuff? Unless it's the source of all stuff, you're going to be disappointed in the end. And that's where this widow is at. So she's like, look, I'm gathering up a few sticks. I'm going to make one last meal. I'm going to take it home and just probably die. She's at rock bottom here. Like you can't be more rock bottom than facing down your death and the death of your son. And I think some of us know what rock bottom feels like. We've been to rock bottom. We could, we could draw a map of rock bottom. Like some of you are there right now. Some of you have been there in the past. A lot of you are probably wise enough to know you'll be there again hitting rock bottom is a part of being human in a shattered universe. But I want to speak some life and hope this morning to all of us who've been there, who are there, and will be there again. This is a lesson I realized the hard way. You can learn things at rock bottom that you will never learn on the mountaintop. Like some of the truths that I cling to about who God is and how God provides and how God loves me that are like necessary for me in my rough moments. I learned in my worst ones when I was on my knees crying out for a miracle because it was God or nothing. And then he showed up because that's what God does. I love the way the pastor Tony Evans puts it. He said, sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so you can discover he's the rock at the bottom. That's what this widow was desperate for. She's at rock bottom. All her life, she's been trusting that Baal could provide, and then she's still slipping. It feels like I'm at rock bottom, and I still can't find a foothold, but she's about to meet the rock at the bottom. Elijah looks at her, and he said, don't be afraid. Go home. Do as you've said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. 
Elijah's like, look, my God can do what your God never could. Watch this. And ultimately what he's inviting her to do is take her faith from the little G gods that have been failing her all her life and put her faith in the true God who's the source of her life. The Bible tells us repeatedly that faith is the way we access God's goodness and God's grace. And for her, faith faith looks like going home, baking her last meal, and then giving that last meal away to Elijah. It almost seems selfish that he's asking for this, but what he wants her to understand is that beauty and meaning and provision and hope come on the other side of trusting the source of life with all the stuff of life. That's why God tells us to, like, to bring our first and best, to come to it with open hands and hand back some of what he's handed us. Like he invites us to tithe and give and serve, not because he needs it, but because we repeatedly, desperately need the reminder that our time and our talent and our treasure are not the rock we're standing upon. They're the resources the rock provided. So Elijah's trying to help this woman see it, and she does it. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. It was just so cool. It's like God's miraculous provision in the life of Elijah again. The, the river ran dry. The raven stopped delivering food. God told him to go. He went and God's still showing up and God doesn't just provide for Elijah. He provides for this woman and for her son. Her faith delivered her a whole lot of food because that's how God works. Our God is a God who responds to faith by providing. But it's important when we talk about a story like this to mention he's not a vending machine. I think there are people in our world who are like, you know what, if you just have enough faith, you can name what you want and claim what you want. If you tithe, God will multiply that number tenfold and hand it back to you. If you put this into the God machine, you'll get this out of the God machine. And that's just not how God works ever. He's not a vending machine but he's also not a slot machine. When we obey, when we're willing to step out in faith, even when it it requires stepping out boldly, even when we gotta go before we know, it's not like putting something into a slot machine and you're like, I don't know if I'm gonna get anything out. You will get something out. It might not be what you wanted. It might not be what you expected. It might not be when you wanted or expected it, but every time we are obedient, God moves. He moves just like he did in the life of this widow. And that'd be so great if we could wrap it up right now and that's the end of the story. But it's not. There's this sudden shocking twist at this point. Verse 17 says, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my son or my sin and kill my son? This is such a confusing moment because God showed up and he did a miracle and he saved this kid's life and now we let this kid die. And you're like, why would you do that, God? What's going on? And for the widow, this is more than just losing the thing she loved most in the world. This is losing the source of her hope because widows in the ancient Near Eastern world couldn't even own property. And so like her son was the thing she had placed her security and her identity and her hope in for the future. She thought, if I'm going to be okay, I'm only going to be okay because this kid grows up and takes care of me. And it's 
interesting in this moment to see her reaction because it's a reminder her trust still hasn't fully migrated from the gifts to the giver. She's still believing that her son is going to be the source of her provision rather than God. And I think for all of us, just like her, the way we react to losing the stuff of life is a clear reflection of how much we trust the source of life. I think for a minute about the last time you lost something important to you, something big, something that mattered. Think about the last time the river ran dry in your life. How did you react to that? And what does that reaction tell you about where your hope is really anchored? Like, it's hard to trust the source more than the stuff. It was hard for the widow in Zarephath. And so when her son died, she, she panicked. But it's really interesting. She didn't blame God or get bitter at God. I think a lot of us do that. We treat God like we're so good, he owes us more than he's given us. We're like, how dare you? This pagan widow knew better than that. She's like, look, I know I don't deserve anything, but I, I don't understand what's going on. This son I thought was going to be the source of my provision and my love is gone. And so Elijah stepped into the situation in this moment. In verse 19, he says, give me your son. And notice what he asks. He says, before you know what I'm going to do, before you know what God's going to do, before you have any idea about how this plan's going to unfold, I want you to open up your hands and give me your son. This son that you are clinging to and weeping over right now, I want you to take him out of your hands and put him in my hand and see what God's going to do next. And she's got really no other option, and so she, she, she did that. And Elijah took him from her, or took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Like Elijah's got questions too. And again, on like so many of us, myself included, he doesn't yell at God like he knows better than God. He just, he just comes with this question. And I love so much. I'm so deeply grateful that this is in the Bible. Because there's no getting around the fact that sometimes God doesn't do what we want and he doesn't do what we expected and he moves in ways we absolutely don't understand at all. And the fact that he's okay with us asking questions about that means the world to me because a lot of times I have questions. I want to be able to come and be like, what are you doing? And why is this happening? And God's all right being asked that question because he's God. And sometimes the answer doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Again, because he's God and we're not. And he's working from a way bigger picture than we can possibly see. And I think the truth of the matter is, and Elijah understood this, and the widow understood this, and coming humbly but still coming to God, if God never does anything you don't like, if God can't contradict you, if God can't demand that you change because he's right and you're not, if, if God never does anything but agree with the way your mind works, then you have a projection of your mind and not God. And so Elijah comes, he's like, I, I don't understand, but I know that you're bigger than me. I'm not going to wallow in this. I'm going to come to the source. And he says a prayer. And we read this. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. 
And the drama here is intense, but it's, it's hard to understand the picture. Like he stretched himself out on the boy three times. If I didn't understand, I'd be like, what? It, I just, it makes me picture this scene. Like, why is he jumping on the dead kid? I don't think that's going to go. I don't think you can jump on the, I just, he might make a gurgling sound. It's not going to help. What are you doing, Elijah? And the, the culture doesn't translate one for one. But what Elijah's doing here is vulnerably stretching out his arms as if to pray, God, please let the death pass from his body into mine. It's interesting. At the very beginning, the widow looked at him and said, did, did he die for my sin? And the answer to that is, no, he didn't die for your sin. He can't die for your sin. Only one could die for your sin, the one who vulnerably stretched out his arms and allowed your death to pass from your body into his. You guys, this is such a powerful moment because it's not just foreshadowing Jesus on the cross. It's also God showing up and saying, I am the master of life and death. And only the true God can do that. Only the true God can be that. That's one thing, death, that this widow has never seen but all touch. It's one thing none of the little G gods that we're chasing after in our universe can touch either. There's a whole lot of stuff in our world that promises it will save you. Religions, Buddha and Muhammad promised it, they're dead. Politicians, Hitler said he was the savior of the universe, so did Lenin. They're dead. A lot of people on both sides of the ticket in November are going to imply it. Fast forward a couple decades, dead. Philosophers have promised it. Nietzsche said the Enlightenment could kill God. Freud said with his philosophy, psychotherapy could replace God. Well, they're dead, and millions of people are in psychotherapy because they're very legitimately terrified of death. In America, we try and push death to the back of our minds by looking at other stuff to save us. Money says it will save us. Power, pleasure, beauty. But like, no matter what you nip, tuck, lift, or color to push back the appearance of aging, you can't stop it. So what are you going to trust that will be there for you in the end? A while back, I read the tragic story of this grandmother in California she watched her granddaughter fall into the deep end of a pool, and she couldn't swim, but she jumped in after her in an attempt to save her. And a couple hours later, the paramedics pulled two bodies out of the pool because the would-be savior had the same problem as the one she was trying to save. That's the exact same thing with anything and everything in this world that promises it can provide, that promises it can be the rock, and promises it can save you. It can't. It has the same problem as you do. Everything outside of the source can't conquer death. And that's what God was trying to demonstrate to this widow in 1 Kings 17. He showed up in her life and he provided food, and that was great, but still she didn't understand who he was. And he had a bigger agenda for her and for everyone around her than meeting her felt need, he knew she needed to be saved from death by meeting him. And that's why her son died. But then, then he answered 
Elijah's impassioned prayer. We read, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. So Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room in the house and gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Notice now it's not your Lord, it's the Lord. She's transferred her trust from Baal to Yahweh and she's decided to have faith that the source of life can handle the stuff of life. And that wouldn't have happened unless she hit rock bottom and meet the rock or met the rock at the bottom. That's what it took to open her eyes and set her free. And I think it's probably not an accident. The word Zarephath in Hebrew means smelt or melt, like the process for purifying metal in a crucible. I think in order to truly know who God was and what God had for her, this widow had to be thrown into a crucible moment. And the same thing is true for you and me. Sometimes in order for us to understand who God really is and how God really loves us, in order for us to shift our trust from all these little gods that have never had the right stuff to the one who does, we have to have a Zarephath moment. We gotta be thrown into the crucible. We have to meet rock, or we have to hit rock bottom to meet the rock at the bottom and learn who he is and how he loves. But I got good news for you this morning. You don't have to hit rock bottom to meet him. You don't have to wait till the river runs dry. You can put your faith and your trust in him completely right now. I just want to invite you to do that. Like whether you've never trusted God at all before or whether you, like me and so many of us, have sort of trusted him but been tempted continually again and again and again by the trappings of our world and our society that are like, yeah, yeah, but this little God has the right stuff and then been failed by that little God over and over and over again. I want to invite you to put your trust completely in God, to trust the source of life with all the stuff of life, whether life for you right now feels like a dry riverbed or whether it feels like the Mississippi is flowing, I want to invite you to do it today. Because just like Elijah, God's got stuff he wants to call you forward to do. There's stuff he wants to make happen in the universe, in this city, through your life. There's a great adventure waiting for you. but you're only going to be able to step into that adventure. You're only going to be able to live the story God's trying to write if you're willing to go before you know, if you're willing to trust him completely. But what you'll find on the other side of the going is beauty and provision and meaning and purpose, like this incredible missional purpose. You guys, this this widow's life was completely changed. Like her story got rerouted. Her son's story got rerouted. The history of the world was changed because we're here thousands of years later still talking about it because Elijah was willing to be like a weirdo who shouldn't even have been in her town and just like talk to her and bless her and love her and invite her to know God. And my prayer for us, Revision, is that like we'd be those kind of weirdos. We're just like, all right, God, I'll go before I know. Let's do some stuff. Because I think if we're willing to do that, If we're willing to ask this question, like, what's the step that I need to take right now? And I want to challenge all of you to ask that question. Like, ask the question, what's the next step I need to take toward the source today? And maybe for you, it's the very first step. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus before. Take it. Take it today. 
He gave his life so you could be forgiven and set free. If you're like, I don't even know how to take that step, meet someone by that prayer banner after the service. They'll walk you through it. It's easy. It will cost you nothing except your life. Maybe for you, the next step is like, God, all right, I'm going to quit trusting pleasure. I'm going to quit trusting power. I'm going to quit trusting popularity. I'm going to quit trusting all these little gods that have never had the right stuff. I, I trust you, the source, with all the stuff of life. Maybe for you, the next step is taking a step. You've been real comfortable where God had moved in the past, and he's been tugging at your heart for some big thing, and you need to boldly just follow him, even though you don't understand exactly what he's doing. But whatever that step is, I challenge you to take it, because I think if we do, as we do, he's going to write an incredible story in and through our lives, one where we live with the peace of knowing we are trusting the one who's trustworthy, and we spread that peace to a desperate and dying world. Would you guys pray with me? God, thank you. Thanks for being trustworthy in an untrustworthy universe. Thanks for being the one we can bank our lives on. Thank you for being the rock at the bottom for every single one of us who have hit rock bottom. Thanks for being the one that we need and the one who promises you'll always provide what we need. Help us to trust you with that. Lord, help us in the middle of a culture that's going to constantly tempt us to look at all these little idols and little gods that promise they can, they can deliver, that have never delivered in the past. Help us to be a people who refuse to fall into the trap of trusting them and instead trust you completely. Let us be people who trust the source of life with all the stuff of life. And people who take that next step toward you and the next one and the next one so that you can do in and through us everything you want to do so you can write the incredible story through us as individuals and us as a church that you're trying to write. We trust you with that, Lord. Amen.